Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're on Team Human, where every action is an opportunity for intervention. This is where we find the others and keep expanding on our understanding of who those others may be. Together, we are undergoing an initiation, an opening, an awakening to how things really are. The painful joy of discovery. This is it. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today... Senior lecturer in Indigenous Knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne, and the author of Sand Talk, Tyson Yunkaporta. Indigenous is a stupid word. It's, it's, it's inadequate, because really what we mean is human. Everything that we describe as Indigenous ways of being, you know, these are human ways of being. This is how you're supposed to be, because we're humans and we have a habitat, and we're supposed to be in a habitat. A member of the Appalach clan in Australia, Tyson will be helping us apply an indigenous lens to see our global crises in a more actionable, inclusive way. It's time to intervene on behalf of everything. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Team Human is a listener-sponsored community. You can join us at teamhuman.fm and get all sorts of stuff, including access to our new Discord channel, our latest try at a back room for teammates to gather, commiserate, and conspire. I've been doing a lot these days, more than I thought, more than usual. It's webinars, talks and things all day, every day. And although it's pretty grueling trying to pay attention to everybody and oneself on webinars, 
there's a lot of work they're doing now on how difficult it is on the mind to look at people and converse with them while there's also a little image of yourself up there. And they're saying that if you take that picture of yourself away, it becomes easier to connect with other people through Zoom and FaceTime and all these things. And I, I admit that actually has been working. And since I've turned off my own picture, I'm finding a lot more ideas coming through and coming up and out of me. And one of them is, um, I guess I'm adopting a new approach to um, regenerative culture and the way regenerative culture and economics and society, really all the circular things we've been talking about, but they're not really so much about uh, replacing and getting rid of capitalism and linear culture so much as embracing or containing or contextualizing them. I've spoken before about how we moved as a, a species, really, a civilization from thinking about things in cycles and circles to thinking about things in lines, that indigenous peoples and first peoples, uh, they tended to understand time in a very circular fashion. There were the seasons, and you would do different things at different parts of the seasons, but time kind of, in a certain way, stood still. They didn't have this notion of a before and after. It was a, uh, everything was kind of happening now and regenerating and circulating. You lived your life, but then you would die and reincarnate into something else. You didn't have any new actions. That Any action that you took wasn't really innovative so much as a repetition of something that had been done before or even just an homage to one of the gods who had done that. So the fertility season is just a reflection of the greater fertility of the gods or of nature itself. And the invention of, of text by, I guess, the Sumerians and eventually the, the Hebrews and writing the Torah and contracts, it's what really created linear time, that once you could write something down, you could record your history, so now you had a past, and you could create agreements, contracts into the future. So you had a, a before, a now, and an after. And the beauty of that, it's not all bad, the beauty of that is we invented progress, the idea that things could be better next year than they were this year and better this year than they were last year. I mean, on the downside, it led to a lot of ends justifies the means thinking that if only we do this now, then we'll get a better tomorrow. So we'll kill all these people and clear them out of this land so that we get it. And then then everything will be fine. And, you know, so when you're too future focused, it can end up leading to a vision of progress that sacrifices a whole lot of people and things and places and animals and whatever right now for this brighter, wonderful future. And it's, of course, what led to capitalism, this idea of investing now for future returns and externalizing damage now for future profits. And it's what led to what we call Wetico. And we'll be speaking about it in the conversation today. Wetico is a, a word that was really invented, I guess, by Native Americans on seeing the Western colonialists coming to America which wasn't America, it was just land, but coming there and clear-cutting forests and enslaving people. And they thought that we had some kind of a disease, a disease of the soul or the spirit called Wetico that led us to just consume and consume and never, never stop, that not recognize the cycles, but just clear-cut forests. And 
I was thinking that most of us, or certainly I, have been talking about kind of eradicating that way of thinking about the world. Like, this was just a bad direction, that we invented capitalism, and we in- invented Wetico, and we invented this linear notion of progress and time, and we've got to get rid of it and get back to the circular one, or bring the circular one forward and move into that. And what I'm realizing is that we don't necessarily just smash all of that moving forward. It's not about, oh, it's not that, but this. You know, as I try to move into more of a yes and mindset, you know, from the the improv people that moving forward, that we yes and. It's not that no but, but yeah, I get that. And we can also do this. If we have a truly regenerative lens, then we can see all of this linear extractive stuff, not as a mistake, but as one phase of a larger cycle. So if you look at, you know, regenerative biology or agriculture, you fertilize, you grow, you harvest and consume, then you poop and the poop fertilizes and you're back at the beginning and you grow and consume and harvest and, you know, poop and fertilize and go around and around and around. But what seems to have happened to us in the in the West is we've gotten stuck in the consume part of that cycle. It's not that consumption is bad or all extraction is bad. You can pull a carrot from the soil and eat it, but you just don't keep pulling it. Once you consume it, then you poop and you don't throw away the poop. You use the poop. You fertilize with the poop. And I feel like we've gotten just stuck in the consumptive phase and then institutionalized the consumptive phase phase with currencies and corporations and religions and societal norms that are all about consumption. And then we supported it with really bad science and bad economics that looks at evolution as a competition and that we're all competing for scarce resources. And really, it's not that we get rid of all that kind of thinking, but we understand that it's part of a bigger cycle. It's like Uh, Think of a child growing up. You know, it starts out, it's one with the mother, one with nature. Then there's this period of time when it's like two and three years old, when it realizes it's distinct. It's distinct. It's like the, the terrible twos when it learns to say, no, 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 I'm distinct from you. I'm distinct from everybody. I have my own self, my own ego, my own identity. And that really lasts till maybe 12, 13, 14, and you go through adolescence and you develop sexually and all of a sudden, oh, look at those other people there. I want to now connect and be part of these other people. And I feel like what's happened to us as a civilization is we got stuck in those terrible twos. We're stuck in that place of it's me, me, me. I want to eat this. I want this toy. I want this thing. Gimme, 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 gimme. Which we look at, I mean, not as a particularly nice phase, but it's a healthy phase of a, of a growing child. It's, it's a stage. So what do we do? I don't think it's a matter of of eradicating it, but helping people who are in that stage, realizing that that stage is going to fade as we move into something else. You know, that we have to do almost hospice care for capitalism and the other linear modes that are dying right now. We don't just stamp on them and yell at them. You know, these are well-meaning people in their own ways. We don't 
other them. Rather, we have to help people like, like even the billionaires. We have to help someone like Zuckerberg realize that he's got a, a multi-billion dollar abscess, like a big infection, a pocket of pooled money that's dragging him down. It's not a healthy thing. It's like an obesity or a, a growth, right? And we have to help him and, and Bezos and all these other capitalists and young baby capitalists develop new approaches that don't accumulate so much. It's not a matter of them doing philanthropy with their extra billions. It's a sickness. It's toxic. And how can they move to healthier, more regenerative models of doing business, doing socializing, doing politics, doing medicine? You know, it's a matter of growing up and learning that, gosh, this is pretty scatological, but learning that poop isn't waste right? You can't ever dispose of it anyway, right? All you can really do is put it someplace where it can transform into the next thing. And these lessons, you know, these lessons are everywhere. They're in Western traditions. They're in the Bible and the Quran and the Upanishads. What do you think the mana coming from heaven is all about? What was it that Joseph mistakenly told Pharaoh about seven years of feast and then seven years of famine? So you got to store up all the stuff and then charge everybody for it and turn them all into slaves, right? We got the lessons. The lessons are everywhere from Western traditions right through the circular and spiral narratives of the first peoples, who seem to be right now a little bit better at remembering these more spiral and circular understandings. So one way to come to a better understanding of these regenerative qualities of existence is for us anyway, for us in the West now, to engage with the wisdom of the indigenous communities, especially those ones that are still among us, the the living indigenous communities who've seen many a civilization come and go. And that's why I'm particularly delighted and honored to welcome the author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World by Tyson Yunkaporta. Thanks, Tyson, for being on Team Human. You know, one thing that we had in common was uh, I loved you talking about Wetiko in here, you know, and, and I've been thinking about Wetiko a lot, the Native American idea that the Westerners had this disease when they came here. And I've been thinking about this disease almost as capitalism, you know, mm. this need to grow. And then you kind of talk about civilization as having cities and almost that cities mm. and the growth requirement of cities is what's so particularly anti-indigenous, you know, that mm. we're just trapped down. I mean, do you see there as there being kind of a, and I know this sounds judgmental, is there like a moment that Western civilization went wrong? You know, was it agriculture? Was it becoming sedentary? Was it building cities? Where did we screw this up? I think it was the centralized control and that that uh, constant growth model. Because I mean, even your early uh, agricultural communities, they, they weren't exponential growth sort of models. You know, the trick that you talk about with capital, you know, that's part of it, you know, demanding more growth. But <laughs> Capitalism is just a symptom. All of the political and economic models that we have, they're all just comorbidities of the illness of civilization. You look at Rome. Rome wasn't a capitalist society. Rome was um, 
was socialist, if anything. Right. But they still had slaves and wars and expansion. And- yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But you had, if you were a Roman citizen, you know, you had a, a bread and a grain dole. You know, you didn't have to pay for that. You had free mass public entertainment and um, all kinds of things offered. So if you lived in Rome, you, you were taken care of, you know, by the state. And if the state didn't do that, then the people would rise up and, um, you know, smash them to death with benches or anything that was lying around in the Senate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like we're over the uh, we're over the the lip of the of the event horizon, though, you know, that the yeah. the extinction event is in progress. And maybe the best we can do is go down as compassionately, you know, and with as much awareness as possible. I mean, as I talk about in the book, it's, you know, apocalypses are, are never just complete extinction, you know, and we've been through a lot of apocalypses. So just, you know, my people have been through heaps of them. And they're quite survivable. They're quite doable as long as you're still, you know, following the patterns of the land and the patterns of creation, you know, as long as you're in touch with and moving with the landscape. Yeah, but the people who are the, the millions of people sitting in cities and, and standing on their real estate, they don't have that or, or don't believe they have that flexibility. They're pretty planted in place, aren't they? Yeah, that, that's it. See, there's a lot of um, bad programming here because I guess you, you'd or your mind would go straight to this idea of nomad. Nomads like gypsies kind of thing, like just moving around and not, not having place. But, um, you know, in Australia, it was more like, you know, these bioregions and, and the, the borders uh, of your language group and your nation or whatever. It wasn't real. They weren't really nations. That's a new idea. But your tribal boundaries were defined by uh, your bioregion. And that bioregion, the patterns of it shaped your language, you know, your culture, everything else. And the contours of that are going to change over time too. Exactly. But you move, you have different camps and sites and places where you go seasonally. You know, you're moving right. around that estate, basically. It's like an estate. And you're moving around that estate and caring for different parts of it in different seasons. Right. You're basically migrating, but cyclically. You're not just wandering the planet. It's not even migrating. It's kind of like it's you just got a really big home. Um, <laughs> and you've got, you know, half a dozen different camps that are all like different rooms in your house. And, you know, you're moving around and cleaning different parts and being in different parts at different seasons. When the, Well, that's the peak time for this fish, you know, at this river between April and, you know, whatever. And so you go there. And it all just fits together. If you're living with the pattern of creation, the perfect time to burn the grass um, is, is, is when the grass is starting to lean over and it's dropped its seeds and those seeds have, have dried out and gone into the ground and they're ready to sprout. That's the perfect time. And it just so happens that when I have to go to a certain place to get this catfish, because um, the catfish is really fat at this exact right time, it's really fat and it's in this place definitely. So I go there to get that catfish because the fat is medicinal and it's and it's really, really good for you. So that's where you go. But it just so happens that um, lots and lots of mosquitoes are in the in the long grass at that time. And the only way you can get rid of them so that you can fish catch these fish without getting eaten to death by mosquitoes is to burn the grass. You know, and that's the right ter- time to burn the grass because those seeds won't sprout. And other seeds like the, you know, of the other trees that are there, they get activated by the smoke from that specific grass at that specific time. 
Well, and then you're like part of nature. Yeah, exactly. So there are a thousand different symbioses that are all fitting together with you belonging to that landscape. And that's almost impossible for me as a human, as a Western human, to even imagine, oh, wait a minute, humans, you mean, could be part of these cycles rather than just trying to either exploit them or ignore them. Most of us, if you see the, oh, there's the fat catfish, you're just going to, oh, let's build a house right there and let's fish them all year round. And then you wonder, <laughs> why are the catfish gone? You know, Or the grass, well, we don't want to cut it then, we want to cut it now. So, all right, let's cut it now, but now we have to get Monsanto in here to put some crazy uh, chemical on there to keep it growing, even though we've broken the cycle's that it uh, uh, it was used to. Well, even worse, like you always know when non-Aboriginal people have been fishing in a place because there's a whole heap of dead catfish on the riverbank. They don't like it. <laughs> I like I know in the states you like a, a bit of catfish and and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, especially in the south, here the settlers don't like catfish. They call them the cane toads of the river, like they're pests. You know, because they've got that sting. Yeah, so they, they catch them and they just, for some reason, they don't throw them back. They, they just kill them and leave them on the, on, the, on the bank. I think it's probably a good metaphor for like almost everything else. But I can understand the impulse, you know, and, and I, I talk about Francis Bacon a lot. And when I, when I read his, his definition of science, when he said, you know, hold it down by the hand. Yeah. <laughs> Hold her down by the hair and submit her to our will. Yeah, I'm that's like, nature. Uh, yeah, <laughs> got her good. <laughs> oh my god! That, see, that's this. Uh, it's this war with nature. It makes you miss things, you know, when you have such a prejudice. And if you can just throw your mind out of that for a minute and set it aside, you know, you'll see so many more complex solutions and different things, you know, to big problems. Even this pandemic now. The approach to the pandemic is, is, is coming from that same war with nature and needing to dominate. You know, nature is the enemy and it's an invisible enemy here. And it's, you know, this virus, this wild virus that's come out of the wild. And we have to somehow defeat this invisible enemy. So that same place where you're catching the catfish before, you know, you go into that salt water there. And we know that there's invisible things of spirit there that enter your body and that they change the pattern of your being. So that's, I guess, that's our metaphor for it. But then the other way of saying that is there are viruses in the seawater that enter your body when you're in there and they like attach to your cells and change them at the, at the genetic level. Then they help you mutate. It's a co-evolutionary thing. So the viruses belong in a place and they're in a perfect balance with that environment and when the pattern is good the viruses are good and when you come into a place or into a season that um, virus will enter you and it'll mutate you and change you so that you become the perfect being for that place and that time right and it explains why you know i know scientists who are using information theory are all confused because all of a sudden wait a minute random mutation of dna doesn't explain the cambrian era when all these new species came but a viral understanding of mutation all of a sudden exactly. well of course we could exactly well i mean I, I don't know why they're ignoring like the, the studies in the galapagos with the bird you know over a 20 year period the beak size changed twice so when, when this beetle died out that, that needed a long beak to, to get to, the, the beak changed. And then the beetle was reintroduced and the beak changed back again. And it happens that quick. 
you know, it's about, I mean, we breed more slowly as humans, so it's about five to 800 years before a mutation will go across a whole population, but it's not that bloody long. If you start eating grains that where the nutrients aren't bioavailable, especially vitamin D, so you're getting insufficient nutrition and you're living in a place that doesn't have much sunlight, you're going to mutate within 500 to 800 years to have a lighter skin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and vice versa, the opposite. For example, human populations mutate quite fast, you know, in the, in the deep time scale of things. You know, it wasn't very long ago that we were all very, very different. You know, even a century ago, people were quite different from how they are now. It's so important because the other thing is, you know, we are we in the West look at the virus as this weird thing coming out from nature. And it's like, actually, if you really want to be technical, this virus came from industrial urban culture. Well, that's it. So this particular virus right now, it's a good example of one. It's, um, it's a comorbidity with, with, a, with a greater pathology, which is the destruction of the environment. So if you disrupt, you know, a natural system, you know, horrendously, you know, as has been done everywhere, including Asia, including here, including the United States, you know, you disrupt that, uh, that pattern, that ecosystem, then you end up with a lot of different species in there that are almost like refugees and they're moving around and they're very distressed and they're trying to find a safe place to be. They're trying to mutate and change, you know, in response to this new environment. And the new environment is so out of balance that the mutations have to also be um, a little bit crazy. Right. Well, it's hostile. It's a hostile environment, you know, and they're going to mutate in hostile ways. In, in an Aboriginal worldview, everything's related. So everything's our relations. All beings are our relations. And these entities, these, these viruses, which are things that we, we've known as spirit entities you know, for a long time, you know, these things are our relations. And they help us. They're little helpers. And they're trying to help. They're like trying to respond to the, the changes in the environment and then trying to change the beings who live in that environment and transform them into something that can survive it. We have a Lissa virus and a Hendra virus here that's in our fruit bats. It doesn't kill the fruit bats. It can kill us and even give us rabies-like symptoms, you know, when it passes from the fruit bats to people. But, you know, that started with horses near a mangrove swamp where the bats roost. And the horses, you know, I mean, the place was trying to help them out and change them so that they wouldn't get sick there and try and make them part of the environment. So these viruses went into the horses and then that transferred across to the bats. And, and it's not killing the bats, but when it hits a human being, oh my goodness, you know, it's, uh, it's no good at all. But when an indigenous culture is sort of undisturbed, say, by civilization, do they still get plagues and things? There isn't any culture that's undisturbed by civilization. You know how every now and then, I don't, it hasn't happened for a few years, but every now and then you'd get a news report of like, oh, a band of like people who completely untouched by civilization has, has come out of the Amazon. And it's always framed as, you know, that they've finally given up with their bloody, oh, it's too bloody hard, you know, uh, <laughs> you know. We're sick of it. Oh, Give us some electricity. Struggling, <laughs> we've been thousands of years, and we tried to hold out, but we've come out. We want, <laughs> we want a Hershey bar. We want some <laughs> Dr Pepper. We want like you know. They always frame it like that, but it's yeah. not. Their fucking river is poisoned, you know. <laughs> right. And so the fish that they've been depending on, and then the entire ecosystem around that has like just been eradicated to the point that they're starving now. Oh, in this beautiful paradise, it looks great. 
you go in there with a camera, you're like, look at this untouched wilderness. But, you know, if you're someone who knows that wilderness, you know that it's already dead. I mean, it's like, you know, when you cut through a tree and that you just got that last couple of little bits to cut but and it's still standing there and people might say, what a beautiful tree. But there's this kind of weird silence and potential energy there. It's about to fall. You know, the tree knows it's dead. You know it's dead, but somebody walking past casually, they don't know it's dead yet. And they're like, ah, oh, yeah, it's all good. But that <laughs> there's parts of the Amazon where, you know, no civilized foot has ever trod and it's already wrecked. There, there's nowhere that's untouched by this civilization. You know, it's it's rapacious. I mean, so there isn't a, a mother, a breastfeeding mother that doesn't have dioxin in her breast milk anywhere. That's that's just That's just our reality now. And then if it does end or whatever we're thinking of, and I know you're saying that some some people, I guess, survive. Could another species become the custodial species of our planet? Well, yeah. I, I always think about that um, that fungus on the International Space Station that they can't kill. Because it is a natural system and a complex adaptive system, it, it adapts faster than they can. You know, every time they invent a new poison to try and kill it, it adapts to that poison and, and changes, and it's becoming stronger, this super fungus. Eventually, they're going to have to abandon the space station. So I imagine, you know, over a couple of centuries, that, that fungus up there in that abandoned bit of space junk just sort of evolving and evolving, and it's out there getting all that radiation, you know, out in space. And I guess, you know, you could have a massive global nuclear, you know, Armageddon here and then eventually bits of that space station will fall back through the atmosphere with this uh, radiation-resistant fungus, and you might end up with a bunch of mushroom beings walking around or something down here later. Yeah, that's actually evolved to absorb radiation. I know they're planting a lot of sun sunflowers at Fukushima, like to try and absorb radiation at the moment. Plant helpers are uh, are useful things. I know, you know, this show, the thing I've been I've been calling this all team human, not to say that humans are better, but, you know, it's at least you should be able to identify with your own species and become conscious of what's our impact on on everyone and everything else. Well, we're, we're the custodial species. We were not given physical strength at all or tough skin or any of the things that you need like that. But we were given other gifts that make us the custodial species. You know, we're able to make meaning and do things and, and we're able to intervene in systems when needed. You know, we're able to consciously become strange attractors. But we've also been limited in that no single mind uh, can do that properly. And you mentioned this sort of feeling of that it dazzles your mind and you can't imagine what it would take for you to become part of the pattern of a place. Well, you, the answer is that you can't do it with one mind. Like one person's mind can't do that. It takes a, a group mind. It takes, yeah, one mind, but, but one mind that's shared uh, among quite a few people. Like you need a lot of different minds coming together in, in a kind of a, a neural symbiosis in order to make the supercomputer that's needed to be able to um, to compute these God algorithms, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and also to experience yourself, you know, with uh, and others compassionately. You know, I, I keep arguing that being human is a team sport. That you you can't be fully human alone. There's no such thing as an individual. No matter what you know, the Renaissance told us. You know, we're we're a collective being. 
but that's I mean that's breaking down so much. I, I feel like my my algorithm knows me better than than most of the people around me at the moment. Um, that's, <laughs> sometimes, well, that's the scary part, though. And I was going to ask, you know, because we we figured that, that we're the custodial species now. If we go, you know, there's there are people, even you know Jim Lovelock, the guy who came up with the uh, Gaia hypothesis. I interviewed him, and and there were two really sad things that came out of that interview that you contradict in your book, and I'm hoping you're right. I mean, one, he said that if we blow this, we can't restore, that the sun has gotten too hot for life to start up again on this planet, that we've got to keep the planet cool with the life that we have. And second, he thinks that he he, he really looks at technology, at algorithms and machine intelligence as the, the next custodial species of our planet. I guess I'm wondering, is there a difference between, as you see it, between life and matter? I mean, are the rocks alive? Do they have consciousness? Can they be our stewards? And if they could, then I guess technology could too, because they're just rocks, really, with electricity in them. But I worry that electricity is discontinuous with our memory, that it's, it's not alive. Well, look, I mean, I guess this is where your physics comes in and your, your your notions of time. You know, like a lot of these theories, they, they kind of freeze time in one place. You know, they they look at history as this, this linear thing and they think of this we, we as this thing now, like, you know, and will we survive this form, this thing right here, right now, you know, and they try and freeze that and they see everything else, you know, before and after as being hostile to the we that is now and we want to survive, we want to live forever. It's just like, well, you know, we has to change and we has always changed. If you can't see, you know, everything in these complex, dynamic, self-organizing systems as sentient, if you don't see self-organization as sentience, if you can't see you know, the life and the spirit and the patterns in that, then, you know, you got a problem. And I do talk about that first and second laws of thermodynamics. And, and I argue that the, the first law of th- thermodynamics is, is a better model of time, you know, because it's not about closed systems. That's about vast interconnected overlapping systems that are exchanging energy and matter all the time, which makes it hard for entropy to actually happen, you know, because you're constantly in this state of exchange and adaptation. Yeah. So this idea of, you know, preserving something in a moment of time, not just yourself, you know, what you love and want to keep and preserve, but also an enemy, you know, we call this virus COVID-19 freezing it. We put the date in the name of it, Mm. you know, (laughs) because we want to freeze it in that moment of time. And we're going to capture that and then we're going to build a bunch of bioweapons to, to try and destroy it. It'll take a year. <laughs> and then but by that time, I can guarantee you that thing's already mutated a bunch of times. Well, but the idea, though, the, the, the goal, and this is the way we think about the world, is that there's like before COVID, during COVID, but don't worry, soon there will be an after COVID. And that's yeah. sort of what I wanted to bring to you. So I know I'm not indigenous, right? But my history, my ancestry is Jewish. And I feel a little bit guilty. That's part of Judaism. But I, I also feel... <laughs> Guilty that 
the, the Jews in some ways were the ones who decided to go, and with the best of intentions, to go from the circular understanding of reality that indigenous people had to the linear understanding of reality. You know, partly it was that we had text. So once we could write things down, we had a history and we had contracts into the future. So we stopped looking at everything in terms of circular seasons and decided there's our history, there's where we are now, and there's this future where we're going to make things better. And it was intended well that that there's progress and progress will allow us to enact more social justice next year than we had this year and more the year after that. And eventually it'll all get so good that the Moshiach, you know, the messianic age will come. And now I look at it and think, oh my God, this is the source of all the trouble, that we went from circles, understanding reincarnation, understanding that there's nothing new under the sun, understanding as all that stuff in the myth of, of eternal return, that all we can do as humans is reenact something that the gods already did before us. And this invention of progress was an illusion and disconnected us from what is real. You only have to worry about that if you're still thinking about it on a, on a straight line. If you see that right. just as a cycle, one little one little loop in in everything, then that's fine. The other thing is, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. I, I you know, if you can find a Sumerian to kick in the balls to try and blame, then then go ahead and do it <laughs> because they, they did it first. You know, you, you you found a good idea and you picked it up and you had it and you took a shot with it. It's funny. I only had one real extended experience with indigenous people, and it was in uh, New Zealand with the Maori. Do you think of yourself, indigenous people, as like one thing that does the commonality between indigenous people outweigh the the sort of tribal differences? Well, it depends, you know, because there aren't many people in the world who aren't affected with this binary logic, you know, and and under that binary logic, you know, you define yourself in relation to the other. So the non-indigenous is the other that we, uh, most of us on some level are defining ourselves by. So there's at least that in common. But there's also, you know, the relationality that I was telling you about before, that relational cognition is, is something most of us share. Some indigenous peoples are colonists as well at the same time. Like the Maori, that's a good example of that, you know. I mean, they've been in New Zealand for centuries, not millennia. I mean, but the patterns of their being and their way of coming into profound relation with that place, you know, even though they were colonists, was indigenous. Indigenous is a stupid word. It's, it's, it's inadequate because really what we mean is human. Everything that we describe as indigenous ways of being, you know, these are human ways of being. This is how you're supposed to be because we're humans and we have a habitat and we're supposed to be in a habitat. And just in the last century or few decades even, we've so profoundly detached ourselves from our habitat and we've so significantly destroyed that habitat that people are just running around like a bat that has no more fruit to eat, whose forest has just burned down, got a weird mutating virus in him and he's finding somewhere to land before someone grabs him and throws him into a wet market. But even beyond the uh, lack of destruction, but beyond the relationship to planet and land, there's a, and I don't even know the word for it, there's almost a a magical quality or an enchanted relationship 
to the world that I haven't told this story in a long time because it's become dangerous. But the, when, when I was in New Zealand and we went to the what, Te Papua Museum and it just opened and um, I'm on the stage and I had been brought down on a scholarship thing to um, study narrativity and to explain uh, how narrativity was changing in the digital age and do it with Maori who are talking about storytelling and story circles. And I'm on the stage there talking about interactivity and about the four wall in theater and how interactivity mm. allows us to break the fourth wall. And then I said, like, watch what happens as I move my hand through the proscenium arch of the fourth wall. And just as my hand passed through the proscenium arch, all the lights went out, the fire alarms went on, <laughs> and everything went flashing and they made us leave the building. And we left the building and all the Maori are coming up to me saying, you did that. You did. I'm saying, I didn't do that. And they go, yes, you did. No, You'll see. You did that. You did yep. That you did. So then, <laughs> right, five or 10 years later, I yeah. tell the story to my class. I'm teaching at the new school in New York on a hot summer day. There's a fly flying around the room. I tell the story to my class about magic and magical sensibilities. And I said, well, magical thinking would be if I took my finger and said, I'm going to shoot this fly with my finger and went, bam. And the minute I did that, the fly fell out of the air onto the ground. Everybody, saw, it just fell onto the ground and the room is silent. Eventually the fly kind of, it, it kicks a little bit and gets up and it goes. And I thought they did that. The Maori yeah. were here. They, it was as if they were trying to prove to me that yes, Douglas, this is real. This is, this is really, was it real? Is that coincidence or is this really happening? It's so funny. Yeah, the the fourth wall. Oh man, I think the fourth wall is is like some ancient Greek spell that's that's part of the <laughs> part of this civilization, you know. I, I think there are some there there are a lot of spells like labyrinths, that labyrinth shape. You know, there's this idea that a lot of cities are are, are built on on that pattern. That there's somehow that pattern is like uh, divinated into the ground underneath it to protect the city. And that you can undo that spell by killing a prince of that city and dragging it anti-clockwise a certain number of times around its body around that city, which is what Achilles did to Hector, ah. you know, in the Iliad, you know. <laughs> so there's a hope of weird stuff like that. I think somehow that fourth wall is some kind of curse because I see it. I see it happening. Um, so I go out for ceremony out in the bush and, and um, you know, so we, we've always had these big, you know, corroborees and ceremonies and rituals and a lot of them I can't tell you about, but, you know, that they go a certain way. And a weird thing I started noticing about eight, seven years ago is that in some of these when I would go out, uh, the people had changed formation and were dancing all facing the same way. So in a rectangle and we're all facing out and dancing for an audience that wasn't there. Instead of dancing for each other and dancing for country, dancing for the land and the spirit of place and the story and the ancestors, they were dancing f to a fourth wall. That that terrified me when I saw that. I, I just saw that that was the death of a lot of things, you know. So I, I see, I really do see that fourth wall as a as some kind of weird curse. As long as you know it's not real. I mean, I love theater. The beauty of theater is let's pretend this thing is here. And by yeah, exactly. pretending it, it gives you power to break the ones that there are in real life. Well, it is a it is a powerful magic. And, and I guess as with all magic, it can be a curse or a blessing, you know? 
but magic is real, right? This brings us back to the internet, you know. So, so we've had as indigenous peoples around the world coming back to that idea of what else do we have in common? We all have this kind of um, we might call a dreaming space now in English. That was a mistranslation from our language. This idea of dreaming, you know, being this world of spirit that spirit moves through. So there is there is this world of spirit. This uh, this a lot of us will call it sky camp now. So there's earth camp and sky camp, and these are mirrors of each other facing each other. So there's ways of entering that world through ceremony, and a lot of that ritual practice involves ingesting certain substances that help you get there. And so Timothy Leary, all these all these fellows, there was that big movement uh, of, of people who found that initially with peyote and stuff like that, that they'd taken from, from indigenous cultural practices. And so they were experiencing this world of spirit, but without law and without a cultural framework and a knowledge framework to anchor them in reality and understand the pattern they were seeing. So they were scooting along the edges of something, you know, a world of spirit. You know, when they came back and, and I mean, they, then they started using the synthetic, you know, the LSDs and all that sort of thing. And the, the internet just kind of really developed and came out of that um, – <laughs> that glimpse of that world of spirit and try to replicate it. So the internet in a way came from indigenous people, you know, it came from an, an indigenous experience and there's some dangers there that I'd like to get into. Yeah. I mean, that's what all my writing in the early nineties was about the way this culture, you know, w- was informed by psychedelia. But now you look at, you know, Eric Schmidt and whoever go down to Burning Man or go down to South America and do ayahuasca with some, you know, thousand dollar an hour shaman and they come back and they still screw everybody over. So, you know, they're <laughs> not it. really doing it then or no, they're doing they're it, not, but they're, they're not coming in. And there's, there's reasons for that. And I should tell you now that I feel like you're a, you're a strange attractor there and there's a basin of attraction around you for these ideas. And I think you, part of it's because of your, um, your genealogy, not your genetic one, but your genealogy, uh, you know, as inheriting the uh, find the others yeah. business. That's a dreaming that you've inherited, you know. He bequeathed. It was weird, you know, when, exactly. when he was dying. He tagged me. He yeah. tagged me and he says, you're That's it. it. You're <laughs> it. And, but but you, don't, you didn't just carry, you know, you, you did what, what generations must and what people in changing you know, context must, which is to mutate right. the thing. And you've had to mutate it. And so you've made find the others, you know, your spin on that is very, very important because any complex adaptive system, like you must, yes, maintain your individuality, but that means that you need to remain as different as possible from the thing, the people that are similar to you. But it also means you, you have to connect with um you know, if you're a node in a complex system, you know, you have to connect with, with other nodes that are very dissimilar from you, you know, and if those two things aren't happening, the system will break down. The dreaming that you've inherited from that elder with your, your journey and what you have to do, um, I think that's really important. But there's this white atavism that happens. So, I mean, you, you've talked a lot about, you know, all the privileged people who are now trying to build bunkers in New Zealand and stuff like that, they want to somehow gather together and store as much privilege of, as possible and bank it and keep it and preserve it. Now, the people who don't have the resources to do that still have the drive to do that. So where is the arc of privilege that they're making? ARK, by the way. Um, where is Where can be their arc? Well, the, the only place they can go is into the past. 
So they do their paleo diets and stuff. So there's this imagining of being able to escape uh, to a paleolithic past uh, where there is this perfect white body and perfect white being that we can we can take out <laughs> we can take our things with us like yeah we want to apologize for slavery we want to apologize for invasion uh, we want to do all that but can we keep our uh, stolen resources please <laughs> can we keep keep that privilege no we can't do that here anymore where can we escape to well we escape to the past we're going to imagine this paleolithic past that we're going to bring into this present you know where we can be like uh absolved and washed clean of all our imperial sins and and become this you know hey no we're we're indigenous too and and there's that danger of that shortcut and that way of being able to maintain that inequality and and a way of being able to keep that wealth and privilege and everything else. And, and that's, I think that's attractive to some people, but only, only some people, but it's a, it's a danger. It's a danger. It's, it's not what you're doing at all. No, it's a danger on a personal level, but also on a, on a corporate level. You know, there's, I'm sure Monsanto, I'm sure they'd be more than happy to hire a, a bunch of indigenous people and get what knowledge they can and kick them out and <laughs> keep going with what they're doing. Yeah, well, they do. And that's what they do in India. You know, right. Um, right. And, Steal and, the I seeds mean, often, from the women. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Steal the seeds from the women. Uh, find out where the groundwater is and and frack that all out. Actually, I think that's Coca Cola that does that. <laughs> but anyway, they're all one and the same. Different faces of the same beast. You know, it's that growth based imperative, and that's what a civilization is. A civilization is basically a community uh, that depends on the importation of resources. That's it. And as such, once you once you put that that little narcissistic germ, you know, into the pattern, it spirals out into this unstoppable growth-based beast. You know, if you're dependent on resources because your little community has to keep growing uh, in order to, to fit your model, then, you know, you're very quickly going to destroy your habitat and then you're going to have to go out and destroy everybody else's as well in the long term just to, uh, just to keep it growing. So the question then becomes is how do we how do we wind that down? I go to businesses and try to show them how the growth imperative is killing them and how they could do things in circular ways and make their everybody rich. They don't really want to hear that. They want their stocks to grow and to get out of this thing bef- with their money. I talk to people about it and it's all nice and good until it's their mortgage and their house and their career and their kid getting into an Ivy League school and or <laughs> And even the the green people I talked to, they were thinking about green really out of personal survival, not out of you know helping humanity or nature manifest itself. You know, so how do we unwind this thing? I mean, I can I can record the you know podcast till the cows come home, but well, I mean, we we can all do it on the personal level. We can do it in community level. You know, we can create intentional communities. Uh, we can get all these businesses and corporations to change what they're doing. We can get, and when I say we, I'm in the billionaires too, because they everybody goes, oh, it's the billionaires. They're the one percent. It's like, nah. You could change all of them. You could get them all on the same page, and all of us could be on Team Human. But then you've still got those asset management funds, you know, and they're the ones that Bill Gates has to go. You know, if he wants something, he got to go there and ask for it. And, you know, and take his cap off and say, you know, please, sir, can I have some more? The asset management funds, they're like, um, it's, it's, it's money that you can't even imagine, you know, and this is the real power in the world. But then I guess, you know, wh- whoever is running that level of things, you'd have to just find that dude and, um, 
maybe go and strand him on an island somewhere. Yeah. I mean, another key great insight from the book is, you know, the way you explain the difference between, you know, complicated things and true complexity. The way that I've always talked to people about it is, you know, in the in the West, in America, we have traffic lights, you know, and it's very complicated, all our traffic lights turning red and green and all the electricity and switching systems. And a traffic circle is actually complex. You know, it requires just a little bit of coordination and cooperation between people, but then you've got everybody going around this circle and getting exactly where they need to so much better and, and more fluidly. And and I feel like if people could recognize complexity, then they would see the difference between complicated pesticides and complex crop rotation and crop mixing. You know, and it's that that story you told of that boy who was looking at the way sand goes back into the ocean. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's a great story that everyone's supposed to be doing this project. They're supposed to be building their little sad, sad buildings. Yeah. And he's just sitting there staring out. <laughs> he didn't meet any of the uh, outcomes for that, but he got an A plus because. Well, he's the one who saw that that you can't fight Mother Nature. That the 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 sand is going to keep moving. That these buildings are not going to stay where they are. That this is a futile effort by civilization to stand up to the natural patterns of nature. But then those efforts themselves are blocking the free flow of sand between systems, where if they would let, let that go and do what it needed to do, then there would be enough sand and you wouldn't have erosion there. You know, that's, uh, it's all the efforts to try and trap sand on one beach, you know, for the pleasure of, you know, certain people who own that real estate that actually stops the flow of that sand and causes other areas to fall into the sea. Apart from that, there's also the massive sand mining that's happening uh, because terrestrial sand's nearly done, is finished now, and um, you know sources of terrestrial sand are done, so they have to dredge it out of the ocean now. And sand is the biggest resource on the planet currently used because it's it's used for all construction, and with infrastructure activities going through the roof right now, more than any time in human history, the sand is the number one resource on the planet, and it's running out. So they have to dredge it out of the ocean. Those big holes that they make in the seabed, they have to fill up with more sand, and you know, or so you end up with all, entire coastlines slumping down. You know, and he saw that, like he was watching because he'd learnt in relation to this particular tree that the she oak, you know, where it, to see where the fresh water was going underground into the sea, and facilitating the movement of that sand, and then he was watching the patterns of the movement there and where it was being blocked and where it was being dredged from the seabed. Uh, and and been dumped onto a onto a beach further up that had a big rock spit that was blocking it there um, to try and keep it there for the rich people who lived on that beach. And he said, "Yeah, see all these buildings here? They're made out of sand, and they're going back where they belong. You know, <coughs> that's my solution." <laughs> But, you know, it's like a sense-making that so many of us are incapable of doing now. I feel like in the West, we're trying to do our sense-making based on on these abstracted, external things. We're trying to make sense of the memes on television of of Trump versus this and that. And you're never going to make sense of these abstracted, mediated pictures. You know, you've got to make sense. You've got to be connected to some actual uh, natural system to even uh, initiate the sense-making apparatus. 
Well, here's where that uh, uh, distributed cognition or haptic cognition, um, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of different names for it in the cognitive psychology studies that have been done on this. There's a lot of it around that embodied cognition, etc. And it's where, you know, new, neural processes do not, they've been found, it's proven that they don't just happen in the brain. You know, so they happen beyond the brain throughout your body, yes, but also into the environment around you, you know, into the particularly the tools we use. There are three species that have been found by science to have that haptic cognition, and it's usually associated with tool making, but it also goes out into the environment around you and your way of relating to place, uh, but also your relationships with other people. You have actual neural activity happening, you know, in your relationships with objects, places, people, all out around you. So if you're living in profound relationship with the reality of your environment, you it's almost godlike. So you go back to the where you're at the Marae with the Maori there, and you um you did something haptically, you know, in your relation with all the people there who are giving you their attention, and then with your hand going out to that that fourth wall, you, you did something. You did something, you had a neural process that was happening beyond the brain and that was being shared by all the people present, but that was also connected to that place, that place, that that special place that resisted that um, magic of the fourth wall. And so you breaking that there in that place, that actually caused something to happen in the reality. It's almost, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that it's almost like a superpower. If you're able to do this connective thinking, that indigenous cognition is about and when i say indigenous i mean human i mean real human real proper team human which is basically what we all are what we all were this brain that we developed and that we evolved with with trillions of potential connections that we only use a tiny fraction of now that didn't evolve out of nothing there's something more there's a common past that we have as human beings and I refer to the same stories that we share about the constellations in the night sky that are named the same way all over the planet. You know, we have a common origin and a common story and a common way of doing things. And we had a larger brain, you know. We, we had a way of connecting with our cognition, you know, out to all the things around us that worked really well. And for those of us in the West, though, I mean, we are – consciously or not, we're mourning the loss of that. I mean, as you talk about it, I get sad because uh, it's not, well, I get to touch it every once in a while, every decade or two, I have a glimpse of it. But like you talked about Avatar depression, that people got depressed after seeing Avatar. And I think it's not just because of what how things could be, but some memory of how things were, of what it was like to be a connected polyvagal species. You know, that event that I was at with the Maori was meant to consecrate this sacred land because the Te Papua Museum is partly in memory of of all the Maori, you know, contributions to their culture and to, to reify, and that they were there welking me into a networked brain and letting me function in a way that I don't normally function. You know, most audiences, if I put my hand out to break the fourth wall, it's not going to change the theater. It's not going to change the room. There, it, was, it was who was there with me that allowed that thing to happen. You know, and that's got to be collective on that, 
on that level. I guess the, the question becomes, and it's probably what you're asked the most, is, you know, what is the first step for people? I've been saying that the first step is, you know, find the others, learn to connect meaningfully with the other humans, look in their eyes, breathe together. And that's the first step towards a more, uh, whatever the sort of networked intelligence that we need. I mean, you started a, uh, a kind of a networked indigenous cultures movement of a sort. The, the, the pebble that I wanted to throw into your basin of attraction was expanding your idea of who the others are to include non-human, non-human sentient beings as well. That's it. <laughs> and is, that, is coronavirus one of them? Or Yeah, yeah. Coronavirus is one of your relations. Right, because I've been telling my team human people, the others, it's like, look across at the red state people, look at the Trump supporters, or look at the, the neoliberals and welcome them into, into the team of humans. You're saying that the real team is, is everybody. Yeah, <laughs> and everybody is everybody. So look, I mean, okay, and, and starting, if, if you could start with your enemy, that's great. So you Trump supporters, if, you, if you're on the other side of that. Yeah, definitely start with your enemy. Bring those others. Okay, so right now, everybody's enemy is this virus. So if we can come into relation with this virus, we're right. And all you need to do is think about the last time you got really sick and you had a fever. You know, what happened? You lay down in your bed and you had fever dreams and you went inwards and you had the dreams that you had, the fever dreams you had, they might have been terrifying, but they changed you. You were mutated. Your spirit was transformed. You, you kind of went in this little cocoon of heat and you were forged into something else. And when you came out of it, how did you feel? You felt amazing and you felt changed. Like a baby, like a first day of life. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you were reborn. And that's what viruses do. They reborn us and they move us. They transform us and they move us to the next place. They mutate us. They literally mutate us. Yeah. The next place in some cases might be the next world. Um, if that's where you need to go. The reason some people get the virus and they don't get a fever and they don't get symptoms, they don't get sick, it's because they're already there. <laughs> they're, already where, they're already where the virus needs them to be because science can't figure out how the hell are these some people not getting symptoms? Well, it's because the virus is going in and going, oh, he's uh, right, he's already, he already, he's already got it. That's fine. So anybody that needs the lesson gets given the lesson. Yeah, it's great. You know the old Ram Das. Ram Das has this story and be here now that he like he met the the whoever the super lama was in India and Tibet whatever and he brought him this acid whatever and he wants to give the guy the acid and the guy says how much are you supposed to take and he says you just take one hit it's very strong. And the guy takes like 20 hits and he sits there for a few hours and he goes yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my nice. God. He's already yeah. there. He already yeah. knows all this. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's funny because you've got um, Timothy Leary and Ram and Ram Das, and they're they're like uh, two sides of the same coin. Uh, yeah. Well, gosh, it's so great to meet you. I'm I'm so glad you found me. It's already been uh, you've had you've had impact. You're like a virus of the best kind. Yeah. <laughs> behave like that little sticky ball and uh, find the proteins and the attractors and, and go and stick to other things. Exactly. Stick to the others. Yeah, stick to the others. There you go. <laughs> That's the new new slogan. <laughs> yeah, get into their DNA and like change them. <laughs> <laughs> right, while well, you still can. Oh my gosh. Well, thanks so much. 
Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was the author of the new book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, Tyson Yunkaporta. You can find out more about him and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a paid subscriber and join people like Alex Muir, Victor Friedman, Colette St. John, and Kevin Armstrong. Thank you for being on Team Human. We are entirely listener-sponsored, and subscribing gets you cool stuff like copies of my books or Team Human jerseys, as well as access to our new Team Human Discord channel, a great place to find at least that first ring of others before going out and engaging with the genuinely other others. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.